Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Nicole Small knows that growth stage technology businesses need more than just money to succeed. They need partners who understand the pace, challenge and opportunities of the startup process. As the investment director at Rampasan, Nicole knows that an injection of funds into a business will make a difference financially, but it's the support with sales and marketing, communication and exposure to global networks that more than delivers real value. Nicole knows how to provide this support or find someone who can, having been part of the team responsible for building one of Australia's most successful startups, Seek, which now has a market capitalisation of more than $9 billion. Together with the rest of the Rampasan team, Nicole loves to find companies that have built a product or service, brought it to market and have a few early customers and are now looking to grow. Fast. But notwithstanding the pace of innovation, Nicole is a very considered investor with clear mental frameworks. While she often falls in love with the companies she meets, she knows that to be a successful venture investor, giving a fast no is just as important as every high conviction yes. Nicole, thanks so much for joining us. You're in isolation at the moment, is that right? Just come out. Today is my first day out of isolation, back to freedom. Um, which is very exciting to have some fresh air and uh, ability to walk around the streets without feeling like I'm carrying the plague. And so how has the experience been for you of trying to build rapport with founders and think through all of the things you normally would for a possible investment in a sort of two-year remote working environment? It has been a challenge. It's been quite a big challenge. I'm not sure if other working parents have had similar experiences. I've got three young children. Currently, they're nine, seven and 21 months old. So during the first lockdown, it was actually six to nine months pregnant, which offered its own challenges. Had my baby at probably the best time during the whole COVID, which was between lockdown one and two, those three weeks that we had some freedom and then had maternity leave for the second half of 2020, which I felt at the time was like the best timing. And I thought coming into 2021, I just timed it perfectly. Didn't sort of pan out that way. Last year was a challenge working, homeschooling two young kids and and a baby. He was at childcare for most of it, which helped. But it meant taking a lot of founder calls with my daughter in the background or under my feet and doing a lot of work in the evenings once the kids were in bed. So it was it was challenging. Hopefully, sort of, I've come out on the other end. Apart from the isolation periods that are happening, sort of semi frequently now, feeling a little bit back to normal. It's helped me. It's probably 
be more efficient at sort of delegating, getting support from the team and not being across all the details that I used to be, but support more from the team to get across the details and bring me up to speed. So that's, it's helped me there in being more a sort of a leader rather than the doer. Um, Paul Naphtali, who you work with, talks glowingly about the amazing balance of EQ and IQ that you bring to Rampersan. And I wonder, even for someone like you who already naturally has a high level of EQ, whether that experience of having that shared experience of challenge through the COVID period has sort of heightened that sort of capacity to see founders as humans and relate, you know, your own challenges to some of the challenges that they're possibly facing. How's that sort of been in terms of sort of humanising the whole investment experience? I think the experience has been where there's founders, particularly with young families, having that sort of understanding of the balance that they have around trying to work really hard and progress their idea into a business that's successful, balancing that with family commitment and obligations and ensuring that they have that right balance. I think that's, it's probably, I was aware of that before, but now even more so of the importance of that for all founders, even when they don't have a a young family to contend with. I think it's really important to have that right balance. We're in the game of backing founders on a long-term path, you know, you know, hopefully it's a 10-year successful journey that we're on the road. And so even if they don't have a young family now, they might in the future. And just ensuring or they have other hobbies that they need to engage in because if you just focus on work for a 10-year, you're going to suffer from burnout, you're going to suffer from potentially mental health issues, and that's not what we want to back. So just making sure the founders have that right balance, um, the right support networks, I think it's really important and potentially, you know, the past two years has brought that to light a little bit more. It's definitely sort of been brought to the forefront of conversations that we have with the founders that we do invest in is how are they managing, how are they coping with their family and the balance and trying to support them where we can. Uh, Going back to sort of the start of your journey, when you were growing up, did you imagine that this would be the sort of work that you would be doing? No, I definitely sort of at high school or during high school, no. My father's a doctor and I was always good at maths and sciences. So there was a bit of a push to go down the medical profession field. And so while at school, I probably thought if anything, that's probably where I'd end up. I never thought I'd be where I am today. When I didn't study medicine or any sort of medical field and went down engineering commerce, I think I always hoped I would find a similar role to what I'm in today. And it's a role that used both sort of my mathematical and sort of interest in science capabilities together with like finance and investing and understanding sort of commercial businesses. So I'm not sure... I had envisaged that this is the role that I would be, but I think if I was to describe the aspects of the role, it probably fits quite nicely with what it was I wanted to achieve while in university or early on in my career. And where did the sort of interest in investing come from? Was that something that developed while you were at uni and once you started working or was that something that even predated that? It probably was 
during university. So I studied engineering and I studied commerce and from some university friends who were doing the double degree with me. It wasn't the cool thing to go down engineering. It was sort of seen as, oh, well, you know, if you can't get a good commerce job, that's what you do. And so I was more pushed, probably a bit of peer pressure, a bit of, oh, well, investment banking at the time was really hot and that's where you made the big big money. So allured to, to that side of the world. So that probably got me the exposure and interest into investing. I, I do look back and regret not having worked as an engineer for even a short period. Not that I regret where I am today, but I, I did enjoy studying it and would have probably liked to sort of call myself a proper engineer for a period. And, and who would have thought engineers aren't cool? But one of the things that I liked in your background was that you went on and did an, an MBA at Melbourne Business School and you actually won the stock picking competition that the MBA Investment Management Association runs and then competed for the university at an international competition in Singapore. Can you tell us a bit about why you think you really thrived in that engagement with picking companies that would do well? Good question. Um, I think there's a little bit of it opened up a little bit of the competitive streak in me. So, you know, you put me in a competition and I, my natural competitiveness comes out. So that that is one aspect. I think the other is, is I'm quite structured and thoughtful. So the stock picking competition, I think it was about the structure that I brought to the process and the lens that I put on it uh, probably allowed for like a strong success and created like and then because I got that feedback quite enjoyed it as well so there was a bit of the competitiveness the structure and the the academic rigor that you needed was a lot of fun and so as you said you did some investment banking you did a bit of strategy consulting and then you spent seven years at Seek which obviously is one of Australia's great success stories what was it like working at Seek during those years of fabulous and fast growth while in it, I don't think I appreciated it as much as I do now looking back on those seven years. It was a real growth opportunity for me as well as for the company. So I came in and there was less than 50 people in the product and development team. We call them seekers. So everyone at Seek thought of themselves as like working in the media space. The competitive set was the newspapers. That's how who we did our competitive tracking against. So that's how Seek was perceived internally and externally when I first joined. Um, and when I left, it was in Australia, the product and development team had grown to over 450 people. And then there was an additional product and dev teams across the world that supplemented the Australian teams. The company had really changed its position from competing with newspapers to competing in the tech world. And the competitive set was Google, LinkedIn, Indeed, so some really large, well-established, globally funded players. And it really changed the conversation of what Seek had to be and how fast they had to move, which was really exciting. It also learned a lot about disruptive business models and how that could displace Seek's position in Australia and, you know, in another of locations overseas and how they needed to respond to that through product and through business model design, uh, which it 
opened me up to some really interesting discussions and debates um, across the company. What I would say sort of set me up really well for working in venture and understanding or interrogating different disruptive markets, disruptive business models and technologies. And so working for a company that's growing at that sort of pace and you know doing fascinating things, what made you take a right turn and head into venture? So in the last few years at working at Seek, I got to work with a couple of early stage businesses and founders, there became a bit of a culture with internally of Seek of incubating ideas and spinning out different products or businesses from those teams. And that gave me a bit of an excitement and the opportunity around the early stage businesses around developing something from an idea to a product to a real business, the opportunities and the challenges that that arose. I met some really interesting founders who were quite inspirational and I felt like I wanted to sort of jump off sort of an established corporate company and start working with startups a little bit more and just you know serendipitously I met a mutual friend between Paul Naftali and myself and they said Paul's looking for someone like you would you be interested in chatting and that set me off down the path of exploring what venture capital could offer me. And what do you love about the work that you do now? I love meeting founders. I love hearing the stories that bring them to start a business. I love understanding, you know, the problem that they're trying to solve and how they're going to solve it and why they will succeed. I never know what the day is going to hold. I never know what interesting stories I'm going to hear. I meet the most amazing, inspirational people and get to learn from them. And I learn about new markets and new technologies each day. It just keeps it really, really exciting. I'm continuing to learn and grow and develop. Yeah, that's what I really love about it. And so what's the flip side? What's the hardest part? What, do you, what are some of the big challenges? I think the hardest part is I meet so many amazing founders, but we only invest in a very small few. So we invest in you know less than 1% of the deal flow that we see. And so saying no to amazing founders it's really challenging particularly when we've spent some time getting to know them getting to know their business challenging to give that sort of raw feedback and saying we're not going to get this deal over the line yeah that's probably the hardest part of of the job and so what what are the characteristics that make you part of the one percent yeah good question and it's really hard to sort of nail down and define definitively I think that's what makes or investing, but particularly venture investing, so challenging and so difficult is that each founder is different, each market that they're solving for is different, each business model is different. So there's no concrete set of rules. But the best way to talk through this is probably the way we run through our deal flow. We talk about it as like, what's the magic? What's the magic either within the founder, the market, the problem they're solving, the product? Can we surface that? and feel the excitement. Then the second thing is, what is the tailwinds or the investment thesis behind that? Which I talked to is, it's the why now. Why hasn't someone solved it before? Why won't someone solve it in the future? Why? What is the sort of market or technology changes that make this, this business succeed from now into the future is a key thing. And then why will this be a big company 
for the next round and the rounds following. And to answer those questions, we look at the market opportunity. We look at the problem that the company's trying to solve and the customer pain points they're trying to solve for. We look at the founder capabilities and their capability to build from an idea stage to a, a big outcome. And then the deal economics as well. How is it going to return the money for our fund? It feels like most markets, the, the venture market goes through stages and there's stages where the power is, is with the check writers and you have lots of capacity to pick and choose and then sometimes it feels like the the sort of power is with the founders and there's so much liquidity in the system that you really got to do a good job as a venture firm to demonstrate your worth to founders. How do you personally and then on behalf of Rampersound, how do you position yourself um, to make yourself attractive to the best founders? Yeah, um, so that's something that we continue to ask ourselves on an individual level and and as Rampersand is what is our value to founders and how do we ensure that we are seeing the best deals and then being able to participate in the best deals. Personally, I think it's a part of my experience of having worked in Seek, the experience that that brings, working with product and developers and understanding their their problems and so supporting founders through the experience and the lens that I bring around product strategy, go-to-market, business model, construction. The other thing is I think it brings back to, you know, the values that I hold, you know, the, the person that I am. I like to think of myself as very value-driven, open and honest, approachable and that founders enjoy feel that they receive value from talking to me, but they can also open up and have open and honest conversations without poor experiences. Um, so that's on a personal level. As Rampersand as a whole, I think it's we have a number of people on our team that bring different skills and expertise. So Paul has a PR and marketing background and he often leans in there. I've talked about my experiences Taryn and Chris have both come from both financial backgrounds, so you can lean on on financial models, metrics, cap raising processes. So that's probably as a team capability. But more broadly, I think the value is is the network that we bring and being able to connect founders with people, advisors, follow on capital, other people that can help solve their problem. So we're a small fund, we're not going to be able to solve all the problems a founder experiences, but what we like to think of ourselves is we can actually connect our founders with other people who can support them, either other founders across our portfolio, other networks we have, or other investors. And it feels like you've been quite explicit about wanting to stay a small fund. You know, it's not that you're sort of a small fund by accident. Why have you chosen to sort of stay in a particular niche? That's an interesting question and it's something that we often have a debate internally about is, you know, how big do we want to be? What's the ideal size? I think for us is we want to stay a seed investor, a pure seed investor, and to create the returns that you need as a seed investor, it's hard to create a three-plus time return on a billion dollars when you're investing between half a mil to a mil in every deal. You have to 
do a lot of deals to return that amount of money. So as a small fund, we think that a portfolio of sort of 20 to 30 companies that we back from an early stage is definitely a lot more manageable. The reason why we think the stage is important is because that's our core experience. That's our core focus. We have the right lens around what makes a seed investment successful. We have the right ability to support the founders that we back. So we can be that unique seed investor in Australia. So that's probably why we have avoided going to be sort of those sort of multi hundred mil to billion dollar funds in terms of focus and sort of ability to return, provide the right returns. Other than stage, so staying at seed, will you consider any sort of startup or or is the universe sort of limited by any other criteria? Yeah, so we call ourselves a technology VC. So there needs to be some technology embedded in the product or business model. We don't love, like most, I think, generalist VCs in Australia, we don't love hardware. So generally avoid that, although there's a couple of companies that do break that mould in our portfolio. Um, And just teasing that out a bit, why isn't investing in hardware popular? Yeah, so hardware is hard. Often it's it's hard to build a scalable business, a low marginal cost business by building hardware. And so often the cost of manufacturing as well as the ability to copy to copy the hardware makes it challenging. What we do invest in, where sort of hardware can play is, I think where hardware is not the core IP, where hardware can be an enabler to capture data or to get the product into the consumer's hands, but it's not the core IP around the business. There's other technologies that support the business that we're investing in. The hardware is just a part of the need to get to the solution. So mainly software technology businesses, any other limitations on the sort of investment universe? Well, we are an ESV CLP fund. So it's only 80% of our funds have to be invested in Australian companies. So Australia, Australian founders and companies is another limitation. Uh, And ESV CLP stands for Early Stage Venture Capital. Limited Partner. Limited Partnership. Yes. Yes. Well done. Um, and so, and that's a tax construct, right? So that exactly. So that provides tax benefits to our limited partners or our investors in the Rampersand Fund. There is a ten percent tax offset from the money invested, and then there is no capital gains tax attached to any of the returns that we deliver. So there's quite big tax incentives to fall under that structure. But beyond that. Probably heavy sort of med tech or biotech is outside of our mandate. Just, you know, we see huge value in in building towards that, but it probably falls out of our capability to run due diligence and, and be the best people to assess those technologies. And then the other thing is, given we are a smaller fund, companies that are going to need to raise very large amounts of capital follow-on rounds are probably starting to be sort of outside the mandate as well because it means we get heavily, heavily diluted and we need to much bigger outcomes on the exit side. So that's another lens that we often take around whether it fits within our mandate. And I know it's hard, but 
of the companies in your portfolio, are there some some sort of, won't call them favourites, but ones you like to talk about that sort of demonstrate the things that you're really looking for and that you really admire in founders and founding teams? It's always hard to pick which ones to talk about because it's like all your children, no one's your favourite. Look, I guess uh, given I'm talking to Gail, I'd love to talk about a couple of our women-led companies. I think that's a great start because these companies are some of the best performing in our portfolio. Um, I know uh, GoTerra, I think it's been mentioned on this podcast as well. Olympia is an amazing founder, truly unique in her personality and her capability and her vision and her ability to deliver against that vision. So she just for a bit of background, she's built a maggot farm through black soldier flies, which consume organic waste and has built a um, robotic capability to automate the consumption of that waste. It's really exciting what she's building. It has a whole lot of impact metrics as well, which I personally love backing. And as a founder, she probably epitomizes, you know, what we want to back in terms of that grit, determination, unique capability and insights, just someone who's truly committed to building her vision. Another one is Expert 360, Bridget Loudon, an amazing visionary founder. You know, she was very young when she started the business, has built a great business, has been on the tailwind of the freelance movement. Now, a lot of the talent shortages that we're seeing in the economy and across our businesses really play into the strategy there to provide freelance consultant uh, workforce to support a lot of those talent shortages. So it's really interesting what she's building and the tailwinds that are supporting her business. Another one which I love is Mass Dynamics, founded by Paula. Paula's Again, uh, highly inspirational founder, a really strong vision, highly passionate. Her ability to build a community around mass spectrometers and research scientists is really inspiring. So Mass Dynamics is building a data solution to more efficiently support the data that comes out of mass spectrometers which is important in proteonomics and genomics research projects. And they've created an automation process that cuts down two weeks of work into less than half a day, and that's continuing to improve. And so she's got a really sort of inspiring vision. Again, the tailwind there is medical research, treatment efficiency uh, needs to be a lot smarter and sped up and more targeted and they're sort of playing into that which is really exciting and and all of those as you say have a sort of impact side to them and sort of do good in the world and and I know that Ramsan's not explicitly an impact fund but it feels like that's an overlay in the decision making process is that is that right or is that sort of a happy coincidence there's definitely some need to be we're not an impact fund but to have a beneficial impact on the world. We don't want to be backing investments that are continuing to cause harm. The thesis of Rampersand, and I think our personal thesis is definitely mine, is I'm working in venture because I want to be able to help fund 
the next phase of economic growth in Australia. Innovation and technology needs to be the key economic driver going forward. We can't keep digging things out of the ground or building above the ground to drive our economic growth. And we are uniquely placed in Australia with our university and education to deliver to that. So we want to back companies that are delivering the next wave of economic growth in Australia. So naturally, I think those businesses fall into those that will have a beneficial impact for like our economy and society. I'm fascinated by the founders that you've chosen. And I think one of the really appealing characteristics of most of them, you know, especially say Olympia Jaeger from GoTerra, for example, is the frankness that she talks about setbacks and failures. Are there setbacks in your own life that you're happy to talk about that you've really learned from? Oh, yeah, I think there's lots of setbacks in my own life. What would I be happy to talk about? You know, I think the past six months of having to take a step back from prioritising my own career and my work during lockdowns and isolations to find a bit more of a balance between my family and work has been a bit of a setback and something I've probably struggled a little bit with finding that right balance where it's led too much to work. I've been wanting to focus more on family and I think the situation just forced me to to take a step back from from work and or achieving what I wanted to to achieve. So that is one thing, you know, I, I haven't been able to lead in on deals. I've definitely dropped the ball on founders. So if I have and you're listening, I'm sorry. But on, on founders we've invested in and, you know, who we've met, the team I've probably been at times a bit short with. And so that I, I feel like that's been a bit of a personal value to me and I guess what I'm coming out of that with is the lessons I've learned is drawing the right boundaries of what I can achieve with the balancing of family and my career, setting out the right boundaries, being clear on them so I don't drop the ball or let people, other people down I think is important lesson that I've learned from, from that period. Well, and something that I, I think all of us have had that experience of feeling like you struggle to do it all. Is there advice you've received over time that's been really beneficial for you to get to where you are now in terms of being a high achiever? Advice is setting out the priorities that you have in your life and just making sure the priorities are right and aligned with the stage of life and the values that you want to achieve has been an important lesson that other people, you know, have tried to give me. I think the other thing is probably not coming with a set plan, being flexible to take sort of knocks along the way, to take different twists and turns across my career has probably been important as well. While it's, I think, often important to have an idea of where you want to go to, if you're too set on that and something comes in the way and takes you out of that, that can be hard lesson. So having that flexibility to say, well, what am I learning? How am I growing? What am I achieving? And how does that get closer to the next step 
but not being so set in that's the only path you can take. You mentioned earlier that you love learning and you love learning from the founders that you have the privilege to, to meet and work with. In terms of learning from other areas, so books and podcasts and things, any favourites that you would recommend to other people, any books or podcasts? Um, one book that our team has listened to recently is Think Again by Adam Grant, a great book around how to be flexible in your decision-making, how to also convince people when they don't align with the way you see things. It's quite interesting, sort of the psychology, and I think a lot of it resonates with me around if you're just trying and say, but these are the facts, which is often what I bring, that often doesn't help convince people of a different point of view if you just come with facts. You've got to understand it from their lens and try and help break a problem down according to the person you're trying to convince. But on the flip side as well, to be open to the feedback, the thought process that the other person is bringing to the table as well. So from an investment point of view and decision-making point of view, I I found it really, really valuable. Think again. From a podcast, I think one that I don't know if it's shared as often, but the Harvard Business Review, The Disruptive Voice often has some really interesting topics of speakers come on. It's based off the Jobs to be Done framework, which is a really interesting framework and I think everyone should listen to it and try and understand a little bit about it. But I find that often that podcast brings a lot of relevant discussions to startups, to investing and to life as well. So last two questions. One is, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur who's thinking about raising capital? The advice I'd go with may not be the advice that you expect from a VC, but do you have to raise capital from a VC? I think from a lot of founders starting out, there's a whole aura around, oh, you've got VC backing. And as I said, we only invest in, you know, less than 1% of startups that we see. So for the vast majority of founders, I would say VC backing probably not right for you. So really make sure that if VC backing is right for the business and it's the path that you want to go on. It's a hard path and it's a long path to go on. If it's not, you know, there's other avenues for funding out there that I definitely consider and it does not make you any less of a founder in any way if that's the path you take. You often can be a lot more rewarded in terms of balance and financial reward by going down that path. So that's the first piece of advice that I'd give a founder. Um, And last question, what are you really excited or optimistic about? Really excited and optimistic about a lot of things. I think the, the, the key thing that's really driving me at the moment is I think there's huge opportunity in the sustainability climate space for technology to disrupt how we're doing things today and change for the good, our social, as well as delivering great returns to investors. So I'm really excited to see in the next few years what innovative solutions Australian founders come with and that we can back in the future. Oh, it's just so great to spend some time with you and I really appreciate with all the myriad of other things that you do, you finding the time to sort of share both your story and Rampasana doing. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been really lovely chatting with you. A lot of tough questions that made me think on my feet, but uh, thank you for having me. Really enjoyed chatting. 
We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.